Hello and welcome to the first episode of Anshet Unexplained Series 4. In this series we will be looking at the stories behind some of the most famous mysterious tales of the strange, paranormal and unexplained. On a hill in Warwickshire, England, the body of Charles Wharton was discovered 77 years ago. The case was dubbed the Witchcraft Murder and sparked concern that witchcraft was still active in England in the 1940s. If you like what you hear, please consider liking, subscribing, or even writing a review on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. As always, we'd like to remind the listener that within this podcast are descriptions of murder and death, and you should be cautious if you find such things distressing. Also, with every story there are victims, so please spare a thought for those who have suffered. Quinton exists of both Upper Quinton and Lower Quinton and is a civil parish in the Stratford-upon-Avon region of Warwickshire, England. It is actually six miles south of Stratford-upon-Avon. Our tale begins with Charles Wharton. He is a farm labourer and has lived in Lower Quinton for the entirety of his life. He was also a widower and occupied a modest cottage with his 33-year-old niece, Edith Isabel Walton, whom Charles had adopted 30 years prior due to her mother's death. Edith worked as a printer's assembler at the Royal Society of Arts, which had been moved to Lower Quinton for the duration of the Second World War. Despite his age of 74 and the fact that he was suffering from rheumatism, Charles continued to conduct small farm work whenever he was able, despite the fact that he was a hermit who did not socialise with his fellow neighbours. As is the case with enigmatic figures within a community, a mythology would slowly develop around Charles, and it was said that wild birds were believed to flock to Walton and feast on seeds directly from his hands, and that he could use his voice to tame and control wild and or dangerous canines. It was also stated 
that the gentleman was well versed in the customs of the countryside, both practical and esoteric. Alton began his tough, arduous task of removing the hedges from a farm known as the Firs, located on the slopes of Meon Hill, on the 14th of February, 1945. Walton was equipped with a pitchfork and a slash hook as he left his property. Two eyewitnesses had in fact reported seeing Charles travel through the churchyard between 9 and 9.30 a.m. Charles could often be seen sporting a stick due to his rheumatic joints, and today was no different. Charles had been working for a local farmer called Alfred Potter for the last nine months, and he was now traversing the countryside to get to Potter's property, the Firs. Charles was supposed to be home by 4pm that evening, but when Edith got home at about 6pm, she discovered that he was not there and became concerned. Edith went to see her next-door neighbour, Harry Beasley, fearful that her uncle had become ill or worse whilst working out in the field. The pair made their way to the firs together, and with the intention of seeing Charles and, if not speak with Alfred Potter, who might be able to shed some light onto the situation. Earlier, Potter had claimed to have observed Charles chopping the hedges as he had arranged. The now three concerned people started out in the direction of where Charles had last been observed, and here they made a startling discovery. They located his corpse in a hedgerow after a very brief search. The horrifying visage of Charles lay stretched out before them. Charles had been repeatedly hit over the head with his own stick. The savage hook that had previously been used on the stubborn hedgerows had ripped open his neck. And the third implement of death, the pitchfork, had its prongs dug firmly into Charles's neck, effectively pinning his corpse to the ground. His savage killer then managed to bury the slash hook into his neck by wedging the pitchfork handle beneath the cross part of the hedge. The shock of this made Edith begin to scream uncontrollably, according to reports made at the time. When she screamed, the sound alerted a passing gentleman by the name of Peachy, who happened to be passing on the other side of the hedge. Potter directed the gentleman to call the police. When Walton's post-mortem was performed by Professor Webster, it was discovered that Walton's trachea had been slashed, his chest had been bruised, and he had many fractured ribs. Walton's shirt had been opened, his trousers had been loosened at the top, and his fly had been unbuttoned, among other things according to Webster. Walton also had a cut on his left hand and bruises on the back of his right hand and forearm, 
which Webster said were protective wounds, wounds he had obtained through trying to shield himself from his assailant. Walton's wounds were inflicted by a stabbing and a cutting instrument, according to Webster, who inferred that the pitchfork and slash hook were the sources of these injuries. Walton was also hit in the head with his own walking staff, which was discovered three and a half yards from his corpse, with blood and hair still attached. The police arrived shortly after 7pm. PC Michael James Lomasny followed by the Stratford-upon-Avon CID and then Professor James Webster of the West Midlands Forensic Laboratory. Until the police arrived, it is stated that Potter kept vigil over the body and the crime scene. The corpse of Charles Walton was removed at 1.30am and the time of death was estimated to be between noon and 2pm. According to some sources, the body had a cross etched into his lower neck and chest. It is worth noting that Webster's autopsy report did not include the alleged cross etched on Walton's breast. The case was assigned to Detective Superintendent Alex Spooner. However, on February the 16th, famous detective Robert Fabian and his assistant detective Sergeant Albert Webb were appointed to join the inquiry because of the crime's gruesome nature and ensuing media attention. The Deputy Chief Constable of Warwickshire decided to send a message to Scotland Yard asking help, which basically stated that the Chief Constable had requested Scotland Yard's help in solving the terrible murder case that occurred only yesterday. The message would also state various details of Walton, recounting that the body is lacking a metal watch, and speculated that the murder was carried out either by a lunatic or by an Italian prisoner in the neighbouring camp. The message also requested the aid of an Italian interpreter. It was generally stated that the missing watch was a gent's basic white metal pocket watch with a snap case at rear. A white enamel face with Edgar Jones, Stratford-upon-Avon, inscribed upon it. Chief Inspector Robert Fabian and his companion Detective Sergeant Albert Webb arrived followed by Detective Sergeant Saunders of the Special Branch later that day. Saunders was a fluent Italian speaker, an attribute that would be needed later in the inquiries. The investigation team went about interviewing some of the local residents of Lower Quinton, some as young as 11 years old, and others who were in and or near the neighbourhood on February the 14th were also interviewed. In an attempt to uncover Walton's pocket watch, or any other clue to this heinous murder, the Royal Engineers used mine detectors to scour the whole area surrounding the murder site. 
but they were unsuccessful in finding any clues. Quiet rumblings were becoming more apparent, and they alluded to this murder being connected to witchcraft and the occult. Robert Fabian was against the idea that the murder was related to the occult, but following the so-called wall of silence that he claimed he was faced with whilst trying to collect information from the people of Lower Quinton, he became convinced that the community were at least hiding something. Included within Detective Sergeant Saunders' questioning and interviewing was a portion of the community that the locals detested. An Italian prisoner of war camp in neighbouring Long Marsden housed World War II prisoners of war. Many of these males were interrogated after the incident and because they were free to travel around the neighbourhood they were quickly added to the suspect list. In truth, several of the inmates had travelled to Stratford to see a play, while others had gone to the movies on the day of the murder. However, after conducting dozens of interviews, it was concluded that none of the detainees warranted further inquiry. There was no evidence that any of the Italians were ever suspected of killing Walton. Fabian's investigations also showed that Charles Walton's best friend was George Higgins who was 72 years old, of Fairview Lower Quinton. Despite the fact that the two had not seen each other since Christmas the previous year, Higgins was hired by a Mr. Verlander of Upper Quinton and was working in a barn barely 300 yards from Walton at the time of his murder. Fabian hypothesized that Higgins could have sneaked over the fields and killed Walton without being observed. On further consideration, he doubted that the elderly man could have had the power, let alone the motivation, to launch such an attack. Edith Walton informed authorities that she had lived with Charles Walton since she was three years old, despite the fact that her father was still alive and living at 30 Henley Street in Stratford. Walton had resided in his cottage since before the First World War, and his wife passed away on December the 9th, 1927. Walton had paid Edith one pound per week in housekeeping, as well as the three shillings per week rent on the cottage and the coal and the meat they needed. Walton earned ten shillings a week old age pension in addition to his casual earnings. Charles had left his pocketbook at home on February the 14th, according to Edith, and would technically not be carrying any money. Finally, she stated that she had never heard Charles Walton claim to have lent money to anyone, and that she had never seen any IOUs. Following up with the Midlands Bank, it was discovered that Charles Walton had deposited £227, 10 shillings, in June 1930, but this had reduced to £11.11 by 1939. During the intervening years, Walton had made frequent withdrawals, but never more than £10 at a time. Interviewing Mr Potter 
As the investigation intensified, Alfred Potter would quickly rise to the top of the list of people suspected of wrongdoing. PC Lomastny was directed to stay close to Potter and his wife and keep an eye on them. For a combination of grounds, Robert Fabian came to the opinion that Alfred Potter was the most likely assassin of Charles Walton. Potter's action on the night of the murder did not appear to be those of an innocent man. Constable Lomastny made the following observations. Potter was agitated. He was shivering and complaining about how chilly he was. Looking back, I believe Potter looked to be more concerned than one might assume. Lomasny reasoned that because Potter was used to slaughtering animals, he could have been less disturbed by the murder scene than other men. Lomasny was taken aback when Potter said he was going home before the Stratford officers arrived. His complaint of feeling cold I considered a strange excuse from one who was used to attending to animals at all hours and in all kinds of weather, especially as the murdered man was his own employee and had been murdered on his own land, he said. The Stratford police arrived just as Potter was about to depart. Potter reported on February the 17th that if he had not needed to tend to a cow in a ditch nearby, he would have gone over to visit Walton at Hillground on February the 14th. He went directly home, arriving at 12.40pm, and then went to view the heifer, he said. The heifer, on the other hand, was discovered drowned in Doomsday Ditch on February the 13th and was not removed from the furs until 3.30pm on February the 14th, around three hours after Potter claimed to have gone to attend to it. Potter's story about the heifer was called into question by his evidence on February the 23rd, in which he indicated that he went home, read the paper, and then helped Charles Batchelor crush mangolds. Potter is undoubtedly lying about his actions at this critical time, Fabian remarked. But the reason for these lies can, for the time being, only be a matter of conjecture. Fabian's doubts about Potter's actions between noon and 12.40pm were fuelled by his assertions that he observed Walton working in the distance at 12.10, 12.15 and 12.20pm, finally telling the inquest that he saw someone stationary at 12.30pm. Thus we have Potter's story gradually changing from seeing Charles Walton working at hedge cutting at 12.10pm to seeing a man standing stationary in a field at 12.30pm, Fabian observed. Walton was usually in his shirt sleeves when Potter recounted meeting him at work. When his body was discovered, he was nevertheless wearing a jacket. Underneath this jacket, he was wearing a shirt with sleeves cut off just above the elbow. Potter would have missed Walton in his shirt sleeves as a result, even if Potter had just seen Walton without his jacket on. It seems improbable he would have worked in shirt sleeves at 12.20 and then put his jacket on, unless he had decided to go home, Fabian adds. 
On February the 20th, Potter told the police that he had earlier told them that he had touched the murder weapons and that he had done it at Harry Beasley's instructions. This was, however, the first time he had made such a claim to the police, and Beasley categorically denied requesting Potter to double-check Walton's death. According to Beasley, Potter did not touch the weapons in his presence. Potter supplied his explanation only after Lemasny broached the subject of fingerprints on February the 20th. According to Fabian, who believes Potter gone to great pains to explain away any of his fingerprints which might be found upon the weapons. In the end, no prints were located. An examination of the sums he had taken from L.L. Potter & Co. for wages and those he had given to Walton refuted Potter's claim that he would occasionally pay Walton for hours he had not worked. Potter was really claiming more money than he needed to pay his employee and pocketing the difference. Potter, by his own admission, is guilty of claiming more wages than were due, and there is no doubt that he was making a good thing out of Walton's employment by him, Fabian stated. Potter had returned to Hillground just after first light on February the 15th, according to the police officer who had relieved Lomasny and stood vigil over the murder site after Fabian and Webb had gone to London. The officer had advised Potter to remain away from the crime site. After exchanging a few pleasantries about the cold weather and delivering the officer a player's cigarette, Potter walked away. Fabian and Webb returned to Potter for a second interview and some questions about why he had not told them about his earlier visit to the crime scene. It appeared that both Happy Bachelor and another of Potter's employees had quit working on the farm in light of the murder. Fabian thought that both of them had realised the character of the man for whom they were working. Bachelor had also put himself in peril by claiming to have seen Potter at 12.40pm, and Fabian couldn't help but wonder if this was why he suddenly didn't want to work for Potter as his narrative did not match that of his boss. Potter wore Bedford court trousers on February the 14th, and Professor Webster felt that there were two bloodstains on the front, but they had been washed too thoroughly for a definitive inspection. What were Potter's movements between 12 noon, when he parted company from Joseph Stanley at the College Arms, and 12.40pm when Charles Batchelor said he saw him at the first was the important question for the police. Despite Potter's several changes of tale, Fabian decided that no real evidence to connect him with the murder itself and no reasonable motive can be found for his committing it. He also had to declare that there was no evidence that Potter was a bully or that he and Walton had ever fought. He depicted Potter as sad and unhappy in his interviews, despite the fact that he closely interrogated and was courteous, even though he never lost his temper. Unkempt, he wrote, describing Potter as, on the surface, dull-witted, 
and I am convinced he is far from that. According to Fabian, Potter was a man of considerable strength and an extremely cunning individual. Several claims have been made that Charles Walton provided Potter money and that the repayment was overdue. But there was no evidence to support this claim. Edith was clearly sceptical and the £300 Walton was meant to inherit from his wife, Isabella, in 1927, had long since vanished by the time he and Potter met. Folklore and Anne Tennant During the investigation, a number of folklore stories and half-truths are believed to have been revealed. This concept was featured in the BBC documentary the Power of the Witch, from 1971. In 1875, in Long Compton, a village only a little way away, an old woman had been killed under exactly the same circumstances. A pitchfork had been thrust into her throat, and the young man who did the crime confessed later in court that he had done it to rid the village of witchcraft. Anne Tennant lived in Long Compton, which is 15 miles away from Lower Quinton. Her murder had occurred 70 years before, in 1875. Tennant was murdered in the same manner as Walton. Tennant left her home at 8pm on September the 15th to go out and buy a loaf of bread. She met some agricultural labourers going home after harvesting in the field on her way back. It is stated that Anne had been slain with a pitchfork by a man called James Hayward. James Hayward, a local man who had known Anne's family for many years, was one of the group of labourers. Hayward was what they used to term a simpleton, who was regarded as somewhat of a local idiot. He struck Anne Tennant with a pitchfork without warning, stabbing her in the legs and head. Hayward was motivated by his suspicions that Anne was a witch. It is claimed that Anne's corpse was pinned to the ground with a pitchfork and sliced with a billhook. According to the evidence, however, it has subsequently been stated that Tennant was not impaled to the ground with a pitchfork. She also did not have her neck slashed. However, the 79-year-old woman was stabbed in the head and chest with a pitchfork. Taylor, a local farmer, heard the ruckus and rushed to Anne's rescue. He held Hayward in handcuffs until a constable came. Anne was carried to her daughter, Elizabeth Hughes, but she died of her injuries at 11.15pm at Elizabeth's home that night. At the inquest, it was revealed that James Hayward had planned a murdering spree, intending to kill up to 16 different women in the area, all of whom he thought to be witches. Despite popular legend, Hayward was a mentally troubled drunkard from the town of Lower Quinton. The only connection between this 1875 crime and the 1945 case is that the murder weapon was a pitchfork. Despite being charged with murder, he was acquitted due to insanity and spent the remainder of his life at Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum.
He's said to have died there in the first half of 1890, at the age of 59. In a Daily Mirror article published on the eve of the ninth anniversary of Charles Walton's murder on February the 13th, 1954, the death of Anne Tennant and the alleged similarities between it and Charles Walton's murder were reviewed. The story added, The police have discovered one other link between the killings, but I have pledged not to reveal it. The detectives may have realised Charles Walton and Anne Tennant were linked, according to one scenario. Their true relationship is somewhat remote, because Charles Walton had a first cousin twice removed called John Haynes. In December 1867, Anne Tennant's eldest son, Joseph Tennant, married Sarah Cook, whose first cousin, once removed, was Elizabeth Clifton, the wife of Anne Tennant's oldest son. Alternatively, the authorities may have judged that there was a greater link. Charles Walton's great-grandparents were Thomas Walton and Anne Smith. Anne Smith was Anne Tennant's maiden name, and she was born in 1794. It is believed she was the one who married Thomas Walton, on January the 2nd, 1812, at Edbrington, Gloucestershire, when she was 17 or 18. It could be possible that she gave birth to the victim's grandfather, William Walton, in 1814, and married John Tennant in Long Compton in April 1819, assuming her husband died first. If this distant possibility is true, Anne Tennant was Charles Walton's great-grandmother. Druid Sacrifice Another theory claims that Charles Walton was killed near a druid stone circle in a druidical ceremony. Many subscribers to this idea reference Robert Fabian, who stated in his book, Fabian of the Yard, one of my most memorable murder cases took place in Lower Quinton, near the Whispering Night Stone Druid Circle. On St Valentine's Eve, a man was slain by a recreation of a druidical rite. And according to Gerald B. Gardner, author of The Meaning of Witchcraft, the Whispering Nights are not a circle. They are not druidical, and they are about 12 miles away as the crow flies from Lower Quinton. Nor was Charles Walton killed on St. Valentine's Eve, and no one knows for certain just what the druid ceremonies were. It is impossible to say that his death was a reproduction of one. Apart from these details, the description is accurate. Walton the Witch Later, it was suggested that Charles Walton was a practicing witch, who was feared by many because of his supernatural skills. These included the ability to cast the evil eye. It is also claimed that he also kept Natterjack toads as pets and used them to blast neighboring farmers' fields, driving them over their lands and killing their crops and livestock. 
1944 harvest failure and the death of Potter's cow on February the 13th are only two examples. The theory that came out was that Walton himself was a witch and he'd made barren the local land. The crops had been bad, they'd been late and they hadn't really been very fruitful. He is said to have tied a toy plough to the leg of a pet toad and sent it scurrying across the local fields. As a result, it was agreed that he would have to die, and he was ritually slaughtered, his blood seeping into the earth and renewing the soil's fertility. This would undo the spell he had cast, a grim act of retribution. The theory continues to claim that Charles Walton was slain on Candlemas Day, which is also the same day as a pagan celebration, according to the old calendar. The theory was that the weather on that specific day would forecast weather patterns for the months ahead. As a result, there was a thought that Candlemas was linked to the success of the next crop, and as Charles Walton was blamed for the previous year's harvest failure, his killing on that day would make sense. Ash Wednesday Theory St Valentine's Day fell on Ash Wednesday in 1945, a day particularly rich in association with black magic. It is reported that the ancient druids performed human sacrifices to the earth on this day. They allegedly slaughtered their victims with knives and then let their blood flow into the earth, enriching it. Michael Ike Wells, the aforementioned 1971 BBC documentary The Power of the Witch, interviewed Edith Walton. With me now is the person who knew him most and best, his niece, Mrs Good. Mrs Good, Charles Walton was living with you at the time of the murder. Yeah. Do you think that there was any chance that witchcraft played any part in his death at all? No. I think um, the papers made a lot of it. Um, and I, I lived with him all my life. And I've never, no never known such things. I think it's ridiculous, really, the things that were said. What did you think about the theories in the newspapers? And, uh, what the papers said was very disturbing because uh, none of it was true. Warwickshire is supposed to have been one of the great centres of witchcraft. Did you ever meet a witch or know anything about witchcraft? No, never. I've never heard of it. I, I never remember them talking about witchcraft till this came along. During the interview, she stated that she did not believe in witchcraft and that the media was only speculating to pique public interest. She had spent most of her life with Charles and had seen no indication that he was connected in any way in the practice of witchcraft. She stated categorically that none of it was correct. When asked if she ever encountered someone active in witchcraft considering the area's history, she stated that she had never met anyone with any ties to the practice. She stated that she had never heard of any of the witchcraft legends around Warwickshire. The Black Dog Rumours surfaced after Charles Walton's death 
that a black dog had been sighted in the vicinity around the time of his murder. This is a local legend that involves a variety of stories about black dogs arriving as omens of imminent death. Even Robert Fabian claimed to have seen a black dog while strolling the meadows of Meon Hill. After the dog sped past him, he ran into a local youngster who was travelling in the same direction. He asked the little child, who appeared to be lost or looking for something, if he was looking for the black dog. But the child became deathly pale and raced in the opposite direction when Fabian described the animal's colour. Reverend James Harvey Bloom, rector of Whitchurch, wrote Folklore, Old Customs and Superstitions in Shakespeare Land in 1929. This contained the narrative of how, in 1885, a young ploughboy called Charles Walton had encountered a phantom black dog on many nights in a row on his way home from work. On the final event, the dog had been accompanied by a headless woman. When Walton had returned home, he learned of his sister's death, which had occurred that night. There is no proof that the Charles Walton referenced in Bloom's book was the same as the Charles Walton who was horrifically killed. The latter has two younger brothers and three elder sisters. If the Charles Walton in the narrative was the murder victim, he must have had a sister who died in the year 1885. His sisters, Mary Ann and Martha Walton, on the other hand, married in 1891 and survived for several years afterwards, while Harriet, Charles's half-sister, was still living in 1901, unless Emma, his mother, gave birth to a fourth daughter between the April 1881 census and the end of 1885, this piece of folklore must have been about another Charles Walton. In the 1841 census, Charles's mother is shown as being nine months old, indicating that she was born in August or September 1840. In April 1881, she would have been 41 years old, having gone five or six years without giving birth, at least to a living child. It is quite unlikely that she did so in the next five years, especially since a careful analysis of the Office of National Statistics' birth, marriages and death records at the period produced no probable Walton births or deaths in the Shipston or Stratford-upon-Avon regions. Fabian Inconsistencies Robert Fabian has often come under scrutiny, mainly due to the fact that it is believed that his book, Fabian of the Yard, that the Walton murder was, in fact, a faithful reproduction of an ancient Druid ceremony. Fabian has also stated that as the murder took place close to the famous Druid circle of the Whispering Knights, that it was evidence of it being a ritualistic blood sacrifice. However, there is no mention of witchcraft, ritualistic killings or blood sacrifices in the two reports Fabian made on the case in 1945. 
It does appear that he was aware of some of the local folklore that surrounds the area, but felt at the time that it was not pertinent. Although 25 years later, he would write the following. Charles Walton, 12th of May, 1870, to the 14th of February, 1945. A native of Lower Quinton, Warwickshire, England, was killed on the night of 14th of February, 1945, at the Furs, a farm on the Meon Hill slopes. Walton's death was investigated by Chief Inspector Robert Fabian, but he was unable to assemble enough evidence to persecute anybody with his murder. Because of some believe Walton was slain as a blood sacrifice, as part of a witchcraft ceremony, or even because he was suspected of being a witch himself, the case has gained a lot of attention. The main suspect, however, was the manager of the Furs, a man called Alfred John Potter, for whom Walton was working on the day of his death. It is the Warwickshire Constabulary's oldest unsolved homicide case. As previously stated, the whispering nights that Fabian claimed were close to the murder are in fact not a stone circle, and furthermore they are not in the vicinity of Walton's murder. The whispering nights can be found 12 miles distant and do not even date from the period of the Druids. It is also worth pointing out that no one actually knows what the Druid rites involved. It is generally believed that Fabian's writings were in fact exaggerated for the sake of excitement. It is then perhaps fitting that his memoirs were in fact turned into a TV series made by the BBC and broadcast between November 1954 and February 1956. This is Fabian of Scotland Yard. While Fabian would later claim that he had faced a wall of silence, the best he could say in 1945 was that the natives of Upper and Lower Quinton and the surrounding districts are of a secretive disposition and do not take easily to strangers. It is possible, though, that no one saw anything and hence had nothing to tell. Given that Fabian worked on the case for several weeks and was unable to solve it, it is clear that he was greeted by a wall of silence. A whole society set on obstructing him either to pagan allegiance or fear of retaliation if they revealed to him the truth. The reality of the situation might have been a lot more straightforward. Fabian may have been frustrated by the fact that he had spent several weeks attempting to solve the case without success, and it may have soiled his good name in his eyes, as a result claiming that he was the victim of a conspiracy would have actually helped him. Although the police were successful in taking numerous statements from individuals, approximately 500 persons from Lower Quinton made remarks indicating that the idea of a wall of silence may have been exaggerated. Although Fabian was adamant in his conviction at the time, witchcraft was not present. Spooner and Margaret Murray 
Fabian and Webb would finally return to London, while Detective Superintendent Alex Spooner reportedly continued to pursue the criminal. The murder reportedly intrigued him so intensely that he returned to the town long after the rest of the world had concluded that the killer would never be captured. Margaret Murray, an anthropology Egyptologist and author of The Witch Cult in Western Europe, visited Lower Quinton in 1950. Charles Walton's case aroused the interest of Margaret Murray, the celebrated Egyptologist and archaeologist. She was then in her 90s, but she came down to the village to stay there and investigate the case personally. And she said that she was 95% certain that the killing was a witchcraft killing, that Walton had been murdered to replenish the earth. Murray conducted her own inquiry and declared that she was fairly certain it was a witchcraft-related murder. The 87-year-old professor pretended to be a visiting artist and stayed in the neighbourhood for a week. But in the end, she did not provide any new information or evidence on the case. In 1952, it is said that a seance was conducted on Meehan Hill in the hopes of gaining some clarification via the spirit world on the mystery. A psychic researcher named Mr. H. Mills and a medium from Birmingham named Mrs. Hagen, both of whom claimed that they had talked to a spirit named Walton. The spirit, according to the two mediums, came to them and screamed, I forgive, I deserved what was coming to me, but not in such a brutal way. It is also stated that Charles Walton's pocket watch was discovered in an outhouse of his cottage in 1960, despite an exhaustive investigation by authorities at the time of the murder. The grave of Charles Walton was allegedly demolished by a relative who was weary of the media attention and frequent visits to the site by hordes of strangers. The graveyard contains few headstones, but one sullen little site sunken in stature with the initials CHW etched on its now rough surface seemed to stand out to followers of this tale. Was Charles Walton the victim of a witchcraft slaying or was his death the result of a pathetic dispute over money? Links to our website and social media are in our bio. Feel free to get in touch, tell us how we are doing, or even suggest future episodes that we can cover. Next week will be the first of our two-part look at the Highgate Vampire. Thanks for listening.
If you are listening to this message, then the subliminal frequency has successfully calibrated to your mind. Do not be alarmed. I am here to advise you to explore the Occultaria of Albion. The Occultaria of Albion is both a written series as well as a podcast. It explores various locations where paranormal and supernatural events have occurred. It is a broadcast on a forgotten frequency. Hauntings, time slips, cryptids, cults and more are investigated and examined. Enter a world designed by torch and moonlight. Go to occultariaofalbion.com or search Occultaria of Albion wherever you find your favourite podcasts. End transmission.